Hey, everybody. Welcome to AM Live. Thank you for joining me. Good to see everybody here. Hope your weekend has gone well. Let me start off this week by saying a few words about Ukraine. The biggest new development, or one of the biggest new developments, has been this bombing of a Russian prison where dozens of prisoners of war were being held. And these were high-value targets. They're members of the Azov Battalion that were imprisoned after the ferocious battle in Mariupol. And these are high-value prisoners who Russia was planning to put on trial, but now dozens of them have been killed because Russia says Ukraine bombed them. Yes, Ukraine, Russia alleges, bombed its own forces using uh, U.S. missiles from the, from the HIMARS system. Now, Ukraine says the allegation is false and says that Russia, in fact, carried out this attack. I have no way to, you know, weigh in on who's who's right and who's wrong. Whenever I try to ponder the scenario, both explanations seem equally crazy. Is Ukraine crazy enough to pull to try to pull this off and kill its own forces? And conversely, is Russia crazy enough to uh, essentially attempt a false flag uh, of this kind, uh, which is so uh, high stakes and so criminal. And it comes at a time when Russia is, is under uh, the, this effort by members of the U.S. Congress. The Senate just unanimously passed a measure, unanimously, so everybody, including Bernie Sanders to Rand Paul, passed a measure calling on the administration to declare Russia a state sponsor of terrorism. And if the U.S. went ahead and did that, that would make negotiations with Russia pretty much impossible, even more impossible than they seem right now. So the idea then that Russia would go and do that at a time, well, at any time, but especially at a time when there are efforts to declare it a state sponsor of terrorism, that seems equally implausible. What I will say, though, is that the official US, you know, allegation from Ukraine and from supporters of Ukraine in the proxy war and from even U.S. officials is that Russia carried out a false flag. That's their allegation, that Russia bombed the prison and then falsely claimed it was Ukraine and then even took remnants of U.S. rockets from other bombings and put them near the prison or photographed them near the prison to frame Ukraine. And that's the allegation. And I just, the reason I think it's, uh, the reason, or the point I want to make about it is simply that when Allegations of false flags with a lot more evidence are made in Syria against insurgents supported by the U.S. and their allies. Allegations of false flag chemical attacks, as was uh, the, the allegation when it comes to Duma and Ghouta as well. When those allegations are made with a lot more evidence than we've seen in this case of the prison, those allegations are simply dismissed as conspiracy theories and uh, atrocity denial by the same people who are now very certain that Russia really carried out a false flag. So I guess the point I want to make is that false flags are actually possible. And it's interesting now that the people who have been leading the charge to bury any talk about false flags in Syria, uh, especially with the use of chemical weapons, they're now claiming very, without, you know, even much investigation that Russia surely carried out a false flag in Ukraine. I'm not weighing in either way on what happened. I'm just noting it's a very interesting double standard. And meanwhile, as Russia is accused of carrying out a false flag and Russia, meanwhile, accuses Ukraine of killing its own soldiers, the talk remains in Washington 
from the point of view of Congress that we need to escalate. And Adam Smith, who's the head of the House Armed Services Committee, uh, he was quoted this week in Politico basically saying that, um, well, Politico says this, a goal for the U.S. is to, quote, ensure we do not end up in a circumstance where we're heading down the road towards a third world war, as National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan said last week. And then Politico goes on to quote Adam Smith, and it says this, Adam Smith said, quote, there's pressure mounting from a lot of people to try to get them to change their mind on that. So basically, Adam Smith is saying there are people, including himself in Washington, who are trying to get the administration to change their mind on not wanting to start World War III by sending more offensive weaponry to Ukraine. And Smith uh, and, and Politico says this, the administration isn't budging, at least for now. But then Adam uh, Smith goes on to say, uh, the... He says this, the administration is not prepared to do that at this point, but there are good arguments being made. So that could change at some point. So basically, Adam Smith is declaring his hope that the administration will change its mind and approve selling even more offensive weaponry to Ukraine. These are weapons basically that could strike much deeper into Russia than the weapons that Ukraine currently has. And that's what Adam Smith is promoting. And I honestly do not think Adam Smith would, would, would be promoting it if there weren't people inside the Biden administration wanting him to. I think this is this claim that they're resistant now is just a setup to get them to basically, quote unquote, change their mind when the time comes. And that might be soon. And ironically, below this article in Politico about how Adam Smith is lobbying for World War Three or lobbying to make it easier to launch World War Three is an advertisement from Lockheed Martin that says F-35 strengthening our supply chain, securing our future. That's right. The future that we might not have if the people in Washington can get what they want and trigger World War III. So that's Ukraine. And uh, meanwhile at home, well, this was the main topic I wanted to discuss in my opening rant today, which is that in St. Louis and Florida, the FBI has just raided a uh, group called the African People's Socialist Party. And uh, rating members of this party in both St. Louis and St. Petersburg, Florida. And this comes after or on the same day that the Justice Department indicted a Russian national who's now back in Russia but was living in the U.S. for a time. And accuses him of basically being a, uh, a uh, undeclared, unregistered Russian agent. And the, the indictment says that he tried to basically give money to and feed propaganda to U.S.-based political organizations. And this party whose members were raided on Friday, the African People's Socialist Party is one of them. And we're going to turn to a soundbite of the chair of the African People's Socialist Party. His name is Omali Yeshetela. And he describes what happened to him and his wife at their home in St. Louis. And we'll play some of his remarks. idea of what they would do. At the same time, they were talking uh, over the loudspeaker. Uh, flash bang grenades were going off uh, throughout uh, the neighborhood. They had broken a window downstairs uh, in the basement in the house. They had broken uh, in the house next door, the apartment next door. They had smashed the door in. So the huge uh, uh, racket that was going on outside. So I walked down the stairs. And when I opened the door uh, going down the stairs, a drone 
uh, came into the door and almost hit my wife in the face as she was uh, as she was uh, leaving uh, the building. So uh, when I get outside, uh, what I see is that there is an armored vehicle in front of the house. Uh, there are combat-clad uh, FBI agents all over the place carrying automatic weapons and what have you. They not only are in front of the house, they are occupying uh, the porch uh, and the yard of the neighbors next door. And this is a really poor uh, and economically depressed community that we live in. Uh, so the flashbang grenades are still going off. Uh, when, I, when I get outside, they, uh, they handcuff me they, uh, and they handcuff my wife. And they, they wanted to have me sit on the curb. Uh, while they carried out their operation. They indicated to me that they had some kind of search warrant and that this search warrant uh, was related uh, to uh, an indictment that was coming down later in the day against a Russian national who was in Russia and that uh, somehow uh, my name, uh, my wife's name, uh, was uh, attached or associated with this indictment that they were uh, going to be uh, releasing in Russia. Uh, they refused to show me a search warrant uh, but of course they had the guns, and so they had the guns and they were able to enter and occupy my house for uh, several hours. But when they, when they had us outside, I, I finally asked them if we were free to leave because it was ridiculous what was going on. They were clearly uh, not arresting us, and they were making a big show uh, in, the, in the community, and people are watching uh, these uh, agents uh, in front of our house. I was later to learn uh, that uh, they, had, uh, they had, first of all, they took our cell phones, they uh, entered the house. We were to learn that they took all of the devices, the computers and what have you, in the house. I was later to learn that uh, at the same time, they raided our house in North St. Louis, a majority African population. They raided the African People's Solidarity Committee and the Uhuru Solidarity Movement. They raided the center, uh, the Solidarity Center that's in South St. Louis, uh, which is majority white uh, section of St. Louis, and which uh, allowed uh, our movement and our party uh, to promote the struggle for, uh, uh, against colonialism uh, and for the liberation of black people here in the United States and around the world. Uh, and this was uh, something that was meeting a great success in terms of the numbers of white people who are colonizers, who are saying that they support uh, the struggle of African people against uh, colonialism. This was the headquarters of much of the movement that we have, uh, having reparations coming to uh, the African community in the form of the programs that we are involved in here in St. Louis. Uh, so that's uh, some of his remarks. Uh, again, that's Omali... Yeshitela, he's the chair of the African People's Socialist Party. And clearly his home, as well as those of other members of his party, was were, were terrorized. He talks about flash grenades, armed uh, officers coming in in the very early morning. Earlier in the clip, uh, which I didn't show, he, you know, he, he references the fact that the FBI assassinated Fred Hampton, also in an early morning raid. So there's a history here. Uh, when it comes to the FBI's persecution of black communities. And uh, this, again, results from that indictment of this Russian national who's not even in the U.S. But basically, you know, the, uh, this group that was raided, the African People's Socialist Party, as they pointed out, you know, we have the right to associate with wh whoever we want, uh, Russian, Chinese, American. That's just a basic right. And they've also been very vocal in supporting Russia. They politically align with Russia in the sense that they view Russia's invasion of Ukraine as a justified endeavor, a justified response to U.S. policy, NATO expansion, the, the coup in Ukraine, all that. It's clear to me that this party 
is being targeted for its political views. And there's a long history of that going back to, you know, I mean, including Dr. King when he was being accused of, be, of being a communist sympathizer. There's a long legacy of this. And what's amazing is how normalized this has become among liberals during the Russiagate era, you know, simultaneously liberals claim to support free speech, claim to support Black Lives Matter. Here is a black uh, liberation group being persecuted, targeted by the FBI. Where's the outrage? Uh, Where's the outrage about this? I didn't, I don't think this was covered on MSNBC. I didn't see much discussion of it, but that this is the culture that Russia gets normalized where basically anything deemed to be associated with the product of Russian disinformation, Russian propaganda, then the state has the right to terrorize them, persecute them, shut them down. And uh, it reminds me also of, you know, this controversy going on right now with this basketball player from the WNBA, uh, Brittany Griner, who is being persecuted in Russia. I mean, she was caught with some cannabis oil, a very small amount, I believe. Regardless, she's obviously being used as a political pawn and held unjustly, and I hope she's freed. But it's interesting to see the U.S. outrage about what happened to her and compare that to what the same, same, a lot of the same people were saying about uh, a woman named Maria Butina, who was during the height of Russiagate, was arrested, accused of being a honeypot, a Russian spy, of infiltrating the NRA, and using basically Republicans um, uh, to get to get political contacts to infiltrate the U.S. And there was all this speculation about whether she was involved in the imagined Trump-Russia conspiracy. And basically, what happened was. It turned out she was essentially persecuted for the crime of being Russian and Russiagate needed Russians to be able to make itself look credible. And so she went through a horrible ordeal of many, many months in U.S. prisons, being tortured, being uh, smeared in the media across the spectrum, including in progressive news sites as being a honeypot, you know, uh, who was using sex to uh, sow uh, a Russian influence operation. So there's all sorts of ugly stuff going on with this that Russia Gate is normalized. And this this raid on this uh, black liberation group to me is just the latest example of it. And, you know, reading the indictment and seeing what this Russian national is accused of, yeah, it, it looks like he was deceptive. And, and the indictment says that he was in contact with Russian intelligence agents to further his objectives. And if that's true, uh, and I can't automatically accept that it's true, but if it is true, then yeah, he was doing something uh, illegal. But what is lost on the reaction to indictments like this is that this political influence operations is what the U.S. does all the time everywhere and on a much grander scale. So whereas Russia here is allegedly using this one guy to try to uh, support a couple of groups here and there with small amounts of money and just to be in communication with them, the U.S. spends billions of dollars all around the world to destabilize governments that it wants to overthrow and support movements that it, that are in its interest. So that's another aspect of all of this that is just that just gets lost and it allows us to then normalize the FBI raiding uh, activists in, in low-income communities. I mean you heard the chairman speak about that that his is a low-income community for you know four or five in the morning the FBI comes in. I mean that's a form of persecution and intimidation. And it's uh, it just speaks to, again, how toxic, how noxious Russiagate has been in normalizing all of this uh, criminal and autocratic behavior on the part of the state. That's what it's about. And by the way, you know, it's interesting. This is obviously a, 
a, a far left group. I think it's fair to say, you know, black liberation activists, certainly very different than someone like Roger Stone. But Roger Stone, meanwhile, in Florida, was was raided during the Russiagate era, also with a SWAT team. The Mueller team had alerted CNN, so CNN was there to film it. And it's just interesting that, you know, whether you're on one end of the spectrum, you know, as this group, this this black liberation group is, or another with Roger Stone, is that how easily the state uh, and, you know, members of the sort of centrist establishment, how far they will go to use authoritarian tactics to target their political enemies, whether it's both on the left and the right. And I think that's, uh, that's interesting. And that's the, that's the time we're in. All right. That's my rant. Let's hear, let's take some calls. Eric, hello. And Eric, if you're there, you are a regular caller. So I know you know how to unmute yourself. There you go. Eric, are you there? Can you hear me now? Okay. There you go. Yeah. Oh, hello. How are you? All right. Super. Um, yeah, I had a question um, about uh, Russia. I don't know. I guess it's, it's kind of an awkward question, but there's the most recent thing I've seen hit the rounds on Reddit has been this awful video of a Russian troop and he's, you know, uh, slicing, uh, he's castrating a Ukrainian soldier and then he's uh, uh, executing him, you know, on the spot. And I was just wondering um, if you had any thoughts about how You've noticed um, this type of, you know, uh, informational warfare in terms of atrocities and stuff, or even if you saw that particular one, but generally how you think the media has been handling this and what you think the ethical bounds are in terms of showing really gory, really awful footage. Um, but in order to, you know, it's interesting to me, like, you know, I mean, if NBC News were to take that particular footage and show it just on a loop, you know, how what's to stop them from doing that? What's their incentives? I've heard about the video. I haven't watched it. I um, I personally don't try to circulate atrocity video only because I just think, you know, this is what happens in war. And that's why these wars shouldn't happen. And these atrocities will happen on both sides. I, I mean, there, there was videos not long ago of Ukrainians castrating Russians. And I recall that being circulated, but I didn't circulate it because I just, you know, I don't see what purpose it serves, at least for me as an individual to do it. But I do think news agencies should report on it. What I, I, what I did hear is that there, you know, some people believe that this was not actually a Russian. It was a uh, Ukrainian uh, castrating one of their prisoners and pretending to be Russian. I have no idea. Um, Just to assume that it's true that this really was a Russian castrating a Ukrainian prisoner. I mean, this is why we shouldn't have these wars, you know, and that, that to me is what's, what, what's most important. Um, but uh, I do think, look, war is terrible. And I do think news outlets should, should show this stuff or at least should mention it. But they also, you know, in, in any case, you have to mention that, you, you know, it's hard to independently verify what actually is going on. That's the problem. I mean, with Syria, for example, so much fakery was put out to accused the government of chemical weapons attacks. There was all sorts of really shady stuff going on. And uh, it's very easy just to say, well, like these people say this one thing, so this must be true. But you have to at least note if you can't independently verify something. And if the media did that, I think that would make the dissemination of this kind of stuff a lot, a lot more responsible. 
That's a good answer. Yeah, thank you. And then any thoughts on Nichelle Nichols uh, from Star Trek? She just passed away. Her from that show, I th- she was a great actor. And I know she meant a lot to a lot of people. I'm not a huge Trekkie, so I, 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 have, I have nothing more to say. Um, was she, well, uh, were you a fan of hers? Well, you know, it's just the end of, an end of an era, but you know, Star Trek has had such an influence. I kind of think that Star Trek is one of those great American, you know, it should be, it should be, um, uh, uh, what do you call it? Uh, put on the, you know, given to students, like you should have to finish at least, you know, the first season of Star Trek before you graduate high school or something. I I think it's a, I think it's just a a nice show, but I was just curious if you had any thoughts. Fair enough. All right, Eric. Thank you. Thanks for the call. Okay. Anthony. Holy moly. Good evening. Happy Sunday to you. So Eric, can you hear me? Yeah. Okay, my I question the, is. I hear the house music behind you too, but, uh, but that's okay. Yeah, it's pretty cool. I'm just having a good Sunday. That's how you know. Oh, nice, nice. But um, well, uh, I liked your interview with uh, Claire, Claire Daly, Mick Wallace. Wow, they were really hitting a lot of good points. I wasn't really crazy about all that green stuff they were talking about, but that's a time for another place. But if they're busting down doors for being Russian agents, then I'm just waiting for the knock on my door because, hey, I'll be, I've been as Russian agent as anybody at this point. I've uh, gotten in the face of U.S. congressmen and women and said, F you, F Ukraine, F this and that, F that. So I'm ready for it. And I never heard of this African... Uh, Socialist Party. Can you tell me more? You know, all I know is that uh, one of this uh, chairman's speeches, the uh, the man who I played before, one of his speeches is included in a dead press song. That's what I learned today researching this story. But it was the first that I think I've heard of them. But um, yeah, I mean, they're they're a small group, but they have members and. The now they're being targeted. So I think I'll be hearing more about them and maybe I can get one of their members to, to speak to me on uh, on pushback. Well, that's interesting. You know, in the Citadel of uh, Sanctimony or a Polite Society C-SPAN today, they had, is it time for a third party? But of course they featured Andrew Yang's centrist BS. So uh, it's yeah, an interesting, interesting thing to consider there. Thank you. <laughs> All right, thanks, Anthony. Okay, Tim. Hey, Aaron, can you hear me? Or yes, yeah, hey, awesome. Um, I just wanted to make a really simple point. Uh, I don't know what you noticed, um, but when Zelensky tried to, you know, bring his uh, roadshow to Africa, four African nations turned up. Right. In other words, it was a complete bust. And I think actually that's kind of way more important than, uh, you know, what happens with some obscure and probably worthy of respect and laudatory comments uh, of a small group in America trying to speak up about what the garbage that we live with. But, you know, I, I think that's the story. Tim, sorry, you cut out for me in the first part. You were talking about Lavrov's meeting with the African nations? No, no. What I was trying to say was 
Zelensky tried to bring his roadshow to Africa and only four members of the African Union showed up. And, you know, I think that's far more significant in terms of um, what, you know, what Ukraine is about and what the West is about and what anti-colonialism is about than, uh, you know, a, a, I'm sure a very laudable group of American um, American people trying to object to uh, imperialist politics, you know? Uh, I did not. So I, I, missed, I totally missed that news. I saw that uh, Sergei Lavrov went to Africa and uh, was warmly received. And I also saw there was uh, there was news of a of a leaked EU document, like the EU envoy to the African Union, where they're basically complaining that they're they're losing standing because they're being blamed, like their sanctions on Russia are being blamed for food shortages yep. on the continent. And this envoy even says that we need to be told factual information about the sanctions and their impact on <laughs> Africa. And what I took that as yep. a complaint that actually even the EU's own people are not being told the truth uh, about what is going on because the way they, they described speaking to African officials is that it was pretty much like, it was pretty much unanimous that the EU is seen as like a warmonger and by, and the sanctions are seen as starving Africa, which is something I wrote about in my last article on the, on the topic, talking about how this is a proxy war, not only in Ukraine, but really on the planet, uh, including in Africa. So, uh, but that's interesting. So Zelensky sends people, and you're saying they only, basically, like they got snubbed. Yeah, he he tried to take his roadshow to Africa, and it failed miserably, which was beautiful to see, because it oh. should fail miserably. <laughs> Sorry, did you hear that or no? Well, uh, that is, uh, I do not know it, and it's very good to know. So thanks, Tim. Okay. All right. Tyler. Hey, Aaron. How are you? Hey there. Um, having a lovely Sunday, harvesting some vegetables in the garden. Hope yours is as well as this. Nice. Um, nice. The, the, the data point I wanted to bring up in the context of this discussion is the, uh, the recent $37 billion increase in police force budgets recently announced by the Biden administration. And I didn't follow every nook and cranny of that story, but I did see a Jimmy Dore segment about it. And I know that's not enough research to really know everything. But um, it, it, in the context of this uh, story about this uh, African uh, Freedom Party, uh, I, I just I'm, I'm I constantly go back to the the un un assailable truth that modern Democrats are the neocons of 20 years ago and have thus moved themselves significantly to the right, especially on police state, surveillance state, and, and militarism, imperialism issues, than even the people who call themselves right-wingers today. And it's just absolutely nuts to me that these kinds of police raids and imperialist policies are coming are coming out of the same party that tries to call itself left in in in, in any way because you know you might be you know left more left on on domestic social issues especially as has been demonstrated recently uh in our in our american context politics but this this imperialism and state surveillance and the kind of excesses of the 
uh, of, of the Russiagate scandal, you know, in, 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 in the context of these kind of stories, right? It's just, to, to, to me, the idea that modern, modern Dems are anything but, you know, right-wing extremist imperialists is completely insane. And I just don't understand how they go on TV calling themselves left or progressive kind of anything, given that these are their policies. So, um, do you, do you have any more insight or understanding into that, uh, juxtaposition or contrast than, than I do? Because it's just, it continues to stump me as more and more evidence of extreme right policy and perspective comes out from these people who keep calling themselves left. Yeah, I definitely think for the most part on foreign policy, Democrats have moved to the even more to the right, although they've always been right wing on foreign policy. Uh, there are exceptions, though. So, for example, they're a bit better on Palestine now. Uh, in the 1980s, when, when Jesse Jackson ran for president, you know, Palestinian statehood was in his platform, Palestinian self-determination. And he was loathed for that by the rest of the party that, you know. It was popular with, you know, members of the base, but with the party establishment, he was loath for that. And they try to make an example of him by basically chasing him out. And, uh, you know, now you have people like Rashida Tlaib and, and Ilhan Omar, and they're pretty good on Israel-Palestine. And that's something we haven't seen before, um, or at least not we, – we haven't seen um, – as consistently. And pe- some people like Cynthia McKinney were actually pretty good too on Israel. But um, I do think there's more space now for criticism of Israel. But on every other issue, they've moved to the right. I mean, you know, ba- you know, back during the Iraq war, you had someone like Dennis Kucinich, uh, who was very principled, very, you know, in being against war. And he was basically chased out of town. He was called crazy. And Democrats have worked very hard to make sure that no one like that will ever really emerge again. And that's why the squad, you know, which is supposed to be like the far left of the party, goes along with pretty much everything except for Israel. But the Ukraine proxy war, they totally support Julian Assange. They say nothing about the coup in Venezuela. They're very, very quiet on that. So, yeah, the party on foreign policy has gone to the right. I guess the the thing is, though, it's, you know, we can't forget the Republicans are exactly the same. There are more Republicans now on the fringes of the party who will, you know, vote for, uh, who, who will vote against, say, the Ukraine proxy war bill. But still, they still support the same policies. I mean, look how many, how many Republicans are cheering on Nancy Pelosi right now to go to Taiwan and provoke China into possibly another world war. So it's, um, we're, it's just, a, on foreign policy, it's, it's just a, it's like, it's a uniparty. And I mean, yeah. On this on this point, I never meant to claim that you know uh, Republicans were dovish peaceniks by any means. But but what what alarms me is that I you know my my own left leaning anti imperialist perspective has seemed at least somewhat welcome and in some corners of the Democratic Party for the last few decades, and mm-hmm. in recent years it just seems like there's a complete rejection of those perspectives. Uh, even just culturally, you know, someone like Bill Maher was also kind of fired. And, you know, one of the one of the early cancel culture victims for his, you know, principled take on, you know, imperialist issues way, way back in the day. And he's since come, you know, to this like extreme right propaganda narrative uh, position on Russiagate issues, for example, uh, and coming out in support of Amy Klobuchar made Crystal Ball made that famous face. Right. 
like you now you even have you know the centrist mainstream media mouthpieces of the of of this kind of centralized progressive movement even even touting right wing you know imperialist ideas on these foreign policy policy sure. state power For issues sure. For sure. Look at look at Barbara Lee. She she was the only Congress member, very bravely, to vote against Agreed. the AUMF, the authorization she for still, the war. Still deserves terror. credit, right? She does, but look at her now. Now she's you know on board with totally on board with Ukraine proxy war. Um, not really speaking so much anymore about peace. It's you know she even said something about there was some clip of her on MSNBC where she said we need to support Ukraine to combat Russian disinformation or something like that i'm paraphrasing but it's something like that it's just you know it's, she's someone who's unrecognizable from what i thought she was at least when she was voting against the a, the, a, the aumf so look that's just that the, uh, that's where we're at that's where we're at it's uh, it's bleak so yeah i guess yeah i never thought that mainstream republicans were any kind of left-wingers here but they're are some openings for you know small government arguments on a libertarian basis that say we shouldn't be invading everywhere in the world just because we should shrink the size of the, the federal government and i kind of am suspicious of those narratives you know because uh, they aren't they just aren't the reasons that i support these these kinds of policies on the other hand like you know strange bedfellows right like it, it does it does seem like there's more openness and willing to discuss a reduction of our imperial footprint on the people who say that they're right, you know, willing to have open discussions on left-wing perspectives on these issues in recent years, it seems, which is weird, but like, fine, if that's who wants to talk about this, then I'll talk with them, right? Like, yeah, well, look, look, I mean, in my personal case, look, I, I, I felt this very personally where progressive spaces, liberal spaces that I, I used to be welcome in, or at least allowed to speak in, now I'm not welcome, but I can go on Tucker Carlson, who meanwhile pushes a lot of views that I find very vile. So I know full well that the space, some spaces on the left have closed, while meanwhile others on the right have opened up. And that's just very, I think it's very unfortunate because I don't want to just be, I don't want to have to go on Tucker Carlson to reach millions of people. I'd rather have other opportunities, but if, if that's the way it is, that's the way it is. And it's it's really a conscious choice by the democratic establishment and their media stenographers to simply just, they don't have space for people who challenge certain propaganda. Not everything. I mean, again, on the left, you can talk about Israel pretty honestly. Like there are hosts on MSNBC who will let you criticize Israel. That's all great. But on other aspects that challenge the state line, no way. There's, there's no space so for it. What, what what do you what do you think explains that that shift on that because it's still clearly you know by and large a right wing imperialist party and, and overall movement but what what do you think has allowed permission for the narrative to shift on that specific in Israel Palestine issue where it hasn't on you know Yemen or Libya or Syria um, what what sort of explains you know the the obvious permission to kind of untow untow the previous line on that one issue now well there's two things. One is years of activism by Palestinians and Palestinian solidarity activists. And it just gets so impossible to hide the brutality of what Israel does and just the sheer insanity of supporting a government that's occupying millions of people and denying them their basic rights on the, on their own ancestral land after Israel, you know, was founded on colonialism. Uh, it's just impossible to, to deny that now. Uh, but also, Look, from the point of view of like cynical people in power, 
it doesn't really matter if you let people speak up now about Palestine because Palestine's not a state. Doesn't have the Palestinians don't have any power. Like they can't really do anything to threaten U.S. interests. Uh, Syria is a state. Syria is a state that is outside of U.S. control, and so it had to be destroyed. You know, Palestinians are already pretty much, you know, they're divided. There's, you know, like like you have the successful effort to to basically uh, divide the Palestinian cause. So you have Hamas and Gaza, and you have uh, Fatah and the West Bank, and they're, you know, completely at odds. And the populations are physically cut off from each other. So I guess the calculation is that it just does if we let people speak up about Palestinian rights, it just doesn't matter. It doesn't threaten power in any meaningful way. And we're going to keep supporting Israel anyway, so who cares? Like, let them talk on MSNBC, like, let them talk on MSNBC now about Shireen Abu Akleh. It doesn't really threaten, threaten them. But if you were to tell people that we're spending billions of dollars on a dirty war in Syria and that we're supporting an, an insurgency dominated by Al-Qaeda and on and on, that, you know, uh, if people knew about that, they could actually change that policy very quickly. And that's the, the narrative structure has to yield on this one because the, the battle's been lost already. Sorry, I missed that. Go ahead. Say it again. The, the narrative structure has to yield on this one because the, the, the battle's been lost already. So they, they can essentially move on. Yeah, a little bit. And also, it's just, again, it's if you, like, they're not going to, they know the, Pal- the Palestinians, or in their minds, at least, Palestinians have been defeated. So it's, you know, they're separated, they're occupied. So if you speak, and if you reduce it to a human rights issue, which is what so much of the discourse says, it's all about human rights. It's not about uh, colonialism and, you know, letting the indigenous people of their land, uh, of, of Palestine, decide their own fate. So also, it's a way to pacify the issue, too, is because you turn it into something that's kind of like touchy-feely and it's sanitized. You know, um, so I think that explains why, you know, it's a combination of cynicism, but also progress that things are a bit more open now on, on Israel. All right, let's move on. Tell Thanks, us. Aaron. Thank Take you. care. Okay. And uh, people are saying in the chat they can't hear. There's no sound. So if that's still the case, please let me know in the chat. All right. Pierre. Can you hear me? Yes. Okay. So um, I'm sure you've been posed this question before, but I've never really heard a thorough answer from anyone. But the term Russiagate uh, seems to be used for different things at different times, and the parameters seem to be rarely defined, and it seems to be like a catch-all used by skeptics. Do you and others like – well, I don't want you to have to speak for anyone else, but others who use the term like uh, Glenn Greenwald and Taibbi, uh, do you – when you use that term, do you only refer to the unfounded claims of collusion as a conspiracy theory? Or do you think that the conspiracy theory of Russiagate includes like Russian interference and the hacking and the contacts with the Trump campaign? Do you think those yes, are conspiracies? Yes, yes, yes. To me, Russiagate is the uh, propaganda campaign that declared that Russia waged a sweeping disinformation effort to sow chaos in U.S. society and install Donald Trump. And they did so in a deep-seated conspiracy with the Trump campaign. So it's both those things. Okay. It's this, it's a, it's a, it's this idea of this sweeping Russian interference that was compared to Pearl Harbor and 9-11. And again, we forget it now because it was so, you know, because we've moved on, thankfully. Uh, but now we're dealing with the consequences of Russiagate. But 
this was the dominant topic for years and years. And this is what we were told every day that Russia was invading our country with its social media bots and its email hackers and that Trump was a traitor and his associates were all complicit in this deep seated conspiracy. So it's, yeah, to, to well, me, it's all I, one thing. When I, when I ask that a lot of, um, you know, they'll say like, Oh, well it, it was, ex- it was focused on by the media too much or stuff like that. But that wasn't my question about, whether it was focused on by the media. I mean, that's a question of editorial judgment. I'm talking about the actual, like, actions. So, for example, the intelligence, Republican-controlled intelligence committee in 2020 um, said that, you know, that the Russian government had engaged in an extensive campaign to sabotage the election in favor of Trump, which included assistance from some members of his own advisors. Do you disagree with that report by the Republican-controlled intelligence committee? Yes, I do. I, I've written a very long uh, article, two-part article on that report. And I, unlike other people, I look at what the report actually says. Okay. And the report is an effort to essentially whitewash the Russiagate probe because, look, people make, a, people make a lot of hay out of the fact that this was a Republican-controlled committee. But look, these are people like Marco Rubio and Jim Reich who are in total lockstep with the U.S. national security state and always rubber stamp anything U.S. intelligence agencies want to do. So the idea that these people would all of a sudden provide some criticism um, and meaningful oversight of the intelligence community is a joke. And at the time, the chair of the committee, the Republican chair, uh, Richard Burr, he had recused himself because he was being accused of corruption because of uh, insight, because of you know the the stocks that he bought right before COVID, that whole controversy. So really, the, the the committee was being run by Mark Warner, who's a Democrat, and he basically pushed through a lot of what he wanted to say, including declaring Constantine Kalimnik a Russian agent with no evidence whatsoever. And everyone else went along with it because they you know they're not interested in doing meaningful oversight of the committee. The only thing the Republicans on the committee cared about pushing back on was the idea of collusion and uh, because that hurt their own candidate that that hurt Trump. And so they they really rejected that. But in terms of this idea that Russia waged an interference campaign, they're fine letting letting the FBI and the CIA say that because that helps advance their own hegemonic interests. And actually, the report makes that clear. It talks about how uh, Russia tried to engage in diplomacy with Trump through back channels. And they talk about how that's a bad thing. They don't want diplomacy with Russia. They don't want to see peace made in Ukraine in the Donbass uh, to end the war there. They want to see that war continue, as Jim Reich, by the way, recently said. So, um, and then look, there's just the fa- there's just like this simple fact. Yes, the intelligence community claims and the Senate intelligence committee agrees and the House intelligence committee agrees that Russia waged a sweeping interference campaign to install Trump. Where's the evidence? Well, who, the who evidence? Ha- Say it again. Who hacked the DNC emails? I don't know who hacked the DNC emails. What I do know is that all the evidence we've seen so far that says it was Russia, in my opinion, undermines the case that it was Russia. <laughs> all uh, right. it, and then uh, one last question. Do you think Greenwald went easy on Alex Jones? I don't. I didn't watch the interview. Oh, okay. I, uh, yeah, I, I right. saw a lot of people getting upset about it. Um, I, but I have to watch it for myself before weighing in. Okay, thank you. Thanks. Okay. It's so funny to talk about Russiagate now because, you know, all that stuff, the, all the 
different kooky characters and the hacked emails because for a while it was such a big part of my daily life. It's, you know, something I, I wrote about constantly and talked about constantly and I'm writing a book about it now, but it's funny. It's just, it was once so important and it seemed so consequential, but now of course, none of it really matters because it was all just such a, a joke. But what's funny is now we're living with the consequences of that joke. Cause I do, th- I do think that Russiagate played a very major role in fueling the crisis in Ukraine now. And uh, luckily you can find out more about that when I release my book, whenever that will be, hopefully, hopefully this year, probably next year. Okay. Next caller. Hey Aaron, how are you doing? Hi there. Hey, thanks for your work, your great work on the gray zone. It's really appreciated. Um, Very quickly, just on the previous thing, um, hacking of the DNC emails. I mean, if you look at William Binney and uh, Ray McGovern, uh, for the previous caller, you'll find that they uh, said it was an inside job based on file download speeds. It couldn't have been done from the internet. And then obviously that connects to the Seth Rich uh, possible source who was murdered about, um, you know, uh, shot in the back in a, in a store. So that's uh, something for them to look at. But um, actually, the thing I wanted to ask you about is about the um, information warfare space in terms of Russiagate and uh, Ukraine. Um, when you look at, <clears throat> excuse me, when you look at, um, how information is being traded uh, narratively covering the Ukrainian theatre, and you also take into account the nature of Russiagate. I'm just wondering what you think of this take. What it looks to me like is the West is essentially caught uh, in a massive litany of constantly easily provable lies. Its narrative barely hangs together on most topics, and they don't really, it can't, those lies don't sustain for more than days sometimes, never mind weeks. Now, in the West, to me, it controls its own media space so strongly that effectively it's got this wall that Russia cannot get through. It's Russia's completely locked out of the um, of the West, um, the Western media sphere. And the question for the Russians, to me, is how do you penetrate that, and what do you use to penetrate it? And I would argue that on the one hand, they could start creating huge amounts of propaganda and bullshit their way through that wall. And hopefully some of the bullshit will land and it will disturb the um, the Western media narrative. The problem with doing that, though, is if, if their lies are disproved quickly, they lose all their credibility in the information space. If you look at what they've actually released to do with the Ukrainian conflict, they have a clear doctrine and justification for why they've entered um, Ukraine, which is actually consistent and seems to have stood the test of time and also is backed up by people like Cohen and Mearsheimer, whose analysis goes back nearly a decade at least, is consistent and roughly credibly explains and predicted why we are where we are. And that matches roughly why Russia's justified the entry into the theatre. But also since it entered, it has released to the UN information about um, U- uh, Russian, uh, sorry, US biolabs, which was backed up in 2015 by uh, Diliana Deyeva, and so on and so forth. And it's also said it's got the other side, it's got the Ukrainian side of the Hunter Biden deals, and there's other information that it's putting out. Okay. And that strikes me as a technique yeah. that says to get through the wall of Western media lies, we use truth occasionally, less of it, but eventually, if that truth lands, it's going to have a far more devastating effect in the information warfare space. Does that hang together for you? You know, the thing is, I, I don't really, it, it doesn't concern me what Russia's propaganda strategies are. I don't really, it doesn't, you know, 
it's just not what I care about. I mean, they, that's their business, what they want to try to do, but that, that, that's not the business I'm in. I, I just care about what facts I can prove and how to cover this whole thing accurately. And I don't know even that Russia's allegations about the bio labs are accurate. I do think there are questions about that story, but, and I know that Russia has released some documents, but I don't look, I don't read uh, Ukrainian uh, or I don't read. And I don't like whatever language those documents were in. I remember when they came out, I couldn't read them. So I don't even know if Russia proved its case with the bio labs. Uh, I, I've heard people think that they do, but I don't know if they have. And regardless, I don't think uh, if the U.S. had biolabs in Ukraine, that would justify an invasion. There are other ways, I think, to go about Russia's grievances. So I, uh, what I do know is that Russia, I think, was provoked in this war. Uh, and a, a refusal to address Russian grievances, which were legitimate, led to this war. And that's what I care about. Um, how Russia goes about justifying it is, is that's, that, that's their business. Okay. Thanks a lot. Thanks. Okay. Jim Clink. Okay. Jim. Hi, Aaron. Hi there. Can you hear me? Yeah. Hey, it's an honor to talk to you. Hey, so how do you think re- the Republicans just hang on a second. How do you think the Republicans are going to handle impeachment? Do you think they'll do Biden first or Kamala first or simultaneously? I don't I, look, I, you know, that's not a prediction I, I can make. I, I'd be surprised that they tried to impeach Biden. Well, like, why would they? Well, I, I, why would they with Kamala there? Because that's why they'd want to get rid of her first. I mean, Kamala is just, awful <laughs> well if you um yeah look that's uh that that's too far over my head i it's not something i can predict i, I will say that i think that both candidates are pretty weak so if you're the republicans you'd want them you'd want them in power to show how bad they are personally but uh we'll see look if they impeach if, 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 if Republicans win Congress in November and they impeach Biden or Kamala, you can come back here and I will give you credit for predicting it. Oh, I, I, I'm wondering if if the Republicans got, you know, I don't think they could get 67 seats in the Senate, but if they got like maybe 61 or two and there was an impeachment trial, you know, a trial in the Senate, do you think that they would find enough Democrats to get up to 67 to convict them? Uh, I think this is way too much speculation uh, on this issue. It so, is a lot of speculation, but I, 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 I'll call you the next year. <laughs> Sounds good. Sounds good. All right. Thanks. Okay. All right. Bye. All right. And Jay, if you're there, there's a microphone button to unmute yourself. Jay, are you there? Okay. Yeah, there you go. Hey. There you go. Hi there. Hey, so... Actually, I was trying to tune in, and I may have pressed the wrong button inadvertently. But um, while I got you, I just want to thank you for your intelligent and insightful and hard fight work, hard hard um, thought work. And I'm just so grateful for what you present and the way you do it, and your diplomacy and dealing with some of the callers and in your work. And uh, I don't know, you're just it's just so great to hear you, man. Thank you so much. 
for well, all thanks, you Jay. Do. Appreciate it. Thank you. For all you do. I'm just so grateful. Thanks. That's very kind. Thank you, Jay. I appreciate that. Okay. Well, Brady. Ah, it's me already. Um, I got a hard question for you, and there's no pressure to answer this. <laughs> um, but I'll, I'll, make, I'll give you an easier question first. Uh, would you interview Alex Jones, and would you go on his show if he invited you? Uh, you know, I've never paid attention to Alex Jones, but just basically knowing what he did with the Sandy Hook parents, I just don't, would I, you know, and if that's still who he is, I mean, I, you know, if he's expressed a lot of remorse for that and he's done a huge reversal, maybe, you know, I would consider speaking to him. But otherwise, if he's that guy who did that, then no, I, I wouldn't want to talk to him. Have you seen the new documentary about him yet? I have not. No. I have not either. I'm going to watch it tonight. Highly recommend you do the same thing. I think that he's an important American figure and whether or not you agree with him, whether or not he's a crazy asshole, it would benefit everyone to interview him because whether or not he's wrong about a lot of things, I've actually learned a lot of valuable things from Alex Jones, like atrazine, glyphosate, uh, toxic chemicals in our food, uh, drugs and water, you know, stuff like that, environmental issues. Um, there's a couple things he's been really right about, and um, I would, I think it'd be great, uh, a great way to unite both sides, the left and the right, to kind of come to come some kind of mutual um, project, something we can both work on together, like investigating Jeffrey Epstein, perfect example. Um, and the hard question I was going to ask you was, if the Pizzagate scandal happened today, do you think it would be taken more seriously than it was in 2016? <laughs> I'm not a Pizzagate believer, but uh, I do think in this environment people probably would believe it more because our elites are so corrupt and so many weird things have happened before our eyes, like the Jeffrey Epstein thing, which we still don't really know what happened. Yeah, I do think you'd find more believers. I'm not one of them, but um, it's not hard to imagine that our rulers are up to some really shady stuff these days. Cool. That's a solid answer. Yeah, I'm not going to twist your arm to believe one way or the other, but I would recommend maybe doing a fresh investigation yourself all these years later and just seeing what you think. Okay, thanks, Brady. I appreciate it. All right. Left is best. Hello? Hi there. Hi. Hey, um, <clears throat> to echo the other caller's um, compliments and sentiments towards your, your work and Gray Zone's work, um, yeah, I, I too appreciate all the hard work you guys put in. To, to getting accurate um, journalism done. Um, but I want to ask you, did you, are you following the, the whole POW's facility that got um, bombed? And uh, do you have, do you have like an, um, a rough estimate to where like you feel it was either like uh, Ukraine is blaming Russia, Russia is blaming yeah. Ukraine. Yeah. Uh, do you have an opinion on that? I don't have an opinion because I, I talked about this at the top of the show. I, um, when I try to assess either scenario, Russia did it or Ukraine did it, both seem to me equally crazy. And it's, it's just, um, so it's anyone's guess. And Russia claims that it, you know, like Russia showed pictures of what it said were fragments from the U.S. bombs. But I don't know. I mean, look, a Ukraine or U.S. officials said that those fragments were moved from a different location. I don't know. I mean, how am I supposed to know? So, yeah, I, I, I mean, it's still early on, right? And, and, uh, when you um it's kind of hard like like you would 
I could kind of see Ukraine doing it, right? Because, you know, if uh, the POWs are giving, you know, if, they're, if some of them are giving valuable information or whatnot, like, um, and I don't see Russia, uh, I mean, the DPR republics, you know, wanting to do that uh, because they're, they're about to hold trials for a lot of the war crimes that were perpetrated by Azov and the like. So it doesn't, I think the, the motive to me is, is on the other side, but, you know, we'll have to wait to see what comes of the evidence. And so also I had a question on the whole Syria thing. And, and I, I believe, I forget where I heard it, but someone was saying that there was trucks uh, leaving where I guess either the US or, or someone was taking the oil from the Syrian, uh, the Syrian people or, yeah. or is, is that really yeah. going on or? Well, I don't know if that's really going on because I, you know, I, I haven't been there to verify it for myself, but there are a lot of reports that affect. There's an outlet called The Cradle which reports that pretty often that their sources on the ground say that, yeah, that there were trucks leaving Syria and they believe those trucks were containing Syria's oil. And uh, that's what's being alleged. I, I don't know if it's true or not. It wouldn't surprise me if it is true. I mean, and, but regardless, whether the Syrian oil is being taken on those trucks out of the country or not, Syria's oil is not going to the Syrian people because the U.S. is stealing it. The U.S. will not let yeah, Syria access its own yeah. And that's the point. And that's why U.S. and that's why U.S. troops are there. U.S. troops are there, as Trump said, to take the oil. And right, it's not right, because yeah, the U.S. Yeah. It's not because the U.S. needs the oil. It's because if you control that oil and you control that wheat, which is all you know, the U.S. is occupying Syria's breadbasket, where a huge amount of wheat crops are grown, and that's being denied to the Syrian people to keep Syria weak and poor after. Uh, the ten-year-long dirty war that. Uh, oh yeah, it's terrible. It's terrible what we're doing to the, the Syrian people. We don't, we don't acknowledge them and all their their needs or the, their desires. You know, we completely ignore their their autonomy, and and it's like it, it's like they you know are, are are telling us you know the situation you know isn't what the U.S. tries to uh, purport it you know and and so I was that was that was leads me to my other question. How do you feel? Um, that's going to end like in, in the future. Like, do you feel like, you know, it's, it's just another like Afghan occupation where the U S is just going to stay there indefinitely until, until someone has the balls to, to pull us out. How do you, how do you see? Like, yes. It's, it's the thing is, you know, um, if you look at the way U S officials talk, they describe the Syria occupation as low cost, which it is. There's only about a thousand or so U S troops there. They're not under attack because Russia and Syria don't want to start a, another conflict there. They don't want to uh, start a world war. So the U.S. just sits there sitting on Syria's oil uh, and its wheat. And it's, it's, kind of in this, it's kind of in this permanent stalemate. And what has to happen is Washington has to lose its appetite for sadism and revenge. Because basically, I mean, the official narrative is we have to stay there to fight ISIS and we also have to hold the Syrian government responsible for its atrocities. What they really mean is we have to uh, avenge the fact that we lost the dirty war to overthrow Syria's government, that we tried to support all these sectarian death squads, including al-Qaeda. That didn't work. We lost and now we want to take revenge and we want to humiliate and impoverish Syria for the fact that they beat us in this war, that our regime change war wasn't successful. I mean, if you look at the way these people talk, I mean, Jim Reich, 
the senator I talked about before says that this has to go on for a very, very long time. This is not going to end. These people want to punish Syria. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the attitude in Washington. And it's not going to change until a president has the guts to pull out these troops and stand up to the, the, uh, the blob, which is pretty unlikely. Or I hate to say this, but because the U S is using its own troops as pawns, you know, putting them there, uh, to, uh, you know, as like uh, placing them there as basically as pawns to control the part of Syria that the U.S. occupies. If U.S. troops start being harmed and, and hurt, that might change the calculation because that because right now it's low cost because no one no U.S. troops are under fire. But if that changes, right. then perhaps that would force a U.S. withdrawal, which is so sad that that's what it takes. That the U.S. It, it, you know is willing to risk sacrificing its own people to steal another country's resources. But that's the decision that they've made. You know, it's the whole, you know, like we go over it, just the, the capitalist ruling class have their, their motives and their agenda, right? They want resor- they want to extract resources at the best deal possible, if not, you know. And so it's just it's just a shame, you know, because I, I make the comparison a lot of times to Bolivia and how, like, you know, they were, like, nationalized their lithium, and then all of a sudden they, they went through a coup, and, and, and I suspect the U.S. was heavily involved with that. Um, but it, it's just, we do that... It's just like a, a, a book, like a movie on repeat, you know, yep. there's, there's countries that want to have autonomy and then here we go. All of a sudden the United States wants to get involved and, and coup them or direct conflict. And it's, it's, it's very, it's a shame, you know, that that's going on through Syria and all, you know, Libya and all these other countries, Cuba has been under blockade for like going on seven decades. It's, it's crazy, you know? And then a lot of people, you know, they look at the, the situation with Ukraine and they're like, Oh, you know, you're just your position is just America's bad. I mean, yeah, that that historically, like if, if you look historically at what the United States has done, yeah, you can easily come to that conclusion. But it's not just you know that you know we're so superficial and that you know America bad is just our motto. There's there's substance to what we believe, you know, and 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 when you you follow the breadcrumbs, a lot of times it leads you to the U.S you know, hegemonic ambitions. So anyways, Aaron, um, thanks for taking my call. Um, I'll kick back and listen to the rest of your uh, Thanks for calling. Broadcast. I appreciate it. Yeah, man. Okay. okay. Oh, Luke. Thank you for what you do. All right, bye. Thank you. Thank you. And Olu, if you're there, there's a microphone button that you hit to unmute yourself. Olu, are you there? Okay, if not, we'll go to... Brad, you already called, so I'm going to go to Sam next. Okay. Sam, are you there? Okay, let's try Olu one more time. Hello, can you hear me? There we go, yes. Yeah, sorry. Um, 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 do you think there's going to be World War Three in this decade? Hi, Hello? sorry, I couldn't hear that. I said, do you think there's going to be World War Three in this decade? Oh, <laughs> I have no idea. I do think that our leaders are in in the U.S. are doing a really good job of trying to make that happen, but I have no idea whether their targets will take the bait. So hopefully not, but I have no idea. Oh, cool. That's it. Thank you so much. Thanks. Okay. All right, everybody. That's a appropriate way to end this call on talk of World War III because that really is what all this is risking right now, whether it's Ukraine or Taiwan, the genius of our, of our uh, leaders in this current moment. So 
Thanks to everybody who tuned in. Really appreciate you spending some time with me. I'll be back on tomorrow morning at 11 a.m. Eastern time with Katie Halper as we do the uh, after Monday morning show here on Colin. And that's it. Have a great rest of your day. Bye, everybody.